welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, writer, percussionist, Latin Grammy award-winning producer from Seattle, Washington, Barrett Marnin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Barrett Martin with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. How do you do, Leandra? It's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me. I mean, likewise. So, you have so much that we need to get into, but short summary of yourself. Like, where did you study? Where are you from? Where are you based? Well, I, I was born and raised in Olympia, Washington, which is actually where I am now. Um, I, I went to school the first time here in Western Washington, um, to a really great, uh, jazz program at Western Washington University. And this was in like 1985. So mid eighties. And it's interesting. That's kind of around the time when the United States, uh, the college program started to have these jazz programs, like where you specifically focused on jazz, um, and in my case, it was jazz and classical. I was, I was studying both forms as a percussionist. So I was playing drums, I was playing piano, I was playing, um, you know, marimba, vibraphone. But I also played upright bass. That was sort of like my other instrument. And I have to attribute that to my high school jazz band director because when I started high school, they didn't need a drummer, they needed a bass player. And he said, here's an upright bass, take it home for the summer, and uh, this, this was like my freshman year. He's like the summer before my freshman year. He said, take this home, learn it. And then when you start, you'll be the bass player. <clears throat> so I, I kind of just, you know, poured myself into that. And it turned out to be a great, like fortuitous thing because throughout college and my professional c- career, I played a lot of upright bass in addition to drumming. Uh, I mean, like I played on an REM record and I played more, upright bass than I played drums, you know, because they just wanted an upright bass on the album and, uh, and a lot of other records like that as well. So I went through, you know, most of that program, but I ended up dropping out to play professionally in Seattle. Like, I think like a lot of music students, you kind of, you get to a point where you're sort of, all right, I feel like I know everything and I'm, I'm itching to play rather than just sitting in a, in a jazz lab or something. And I started playing professionally in Seattle <clears throat> and um, kind of got rerouted into rock and roll because that was the emerging form at the time. And, uh, and then many years later, I went back to graduate school and studied ethnomusicology and worked all over the world. I worked in the Peruvian Amazon. I worked in the Alaskan Arctic and studied a lot of indigenous music and, and continued to do my, my jazz and uh, world music albums. Okay, that's a lot. So let's <laughs> break that down. I was trying to give, <laughs> no, you, no, that's cool. trying to give you 30 years in like three minutes or whatever. <laughs> well, if you could go back, would you actually finish your bachelor's or would you still drop out? Uh, you know, I thought about that because uh, I... I really l- loved school. I mean, I've always loved learning and, and uh, you know, if... Because you can look at it like this. I, I transferred to the University of Washington because that was in Seattle. And I wanted to be in Seattle because I was hearing all these cool bands that were 
coming out of Seattle in like 1987, 1988. This is like all the sub pop stuff that was starting to emerge. And uh, I suppose I could have stayed in school at the University of Washington and just uh, finished my bachelor's and then uh, gone right into playing professionally. But I think I just needed to play, you know, in bands and get in, in the clubs and start doing that. Um, and, uh, you can't really do that till you're 21 in this state. So, uh, I just, I just jumped to it. Okay. I mean, when you dropped out was what year? Uh, 1987. 87. Okay. But then I will say this though, that I, I actually really respect people that go back to school later in life because when I went back to school, it was 15 years later and I finished my bachelor's degree in, in a year and then went um, straight into graduate school and got a master's degree and started working on a PhD. And I loved the second phase of my education. I, I just poured myself into the, the music classes and I loved it. But sometimes I think when you're a young person and, and uh, it's, just, it's just a lot to absorb into a young mind, you know, I think sometimes you need a little break. Understood. Is this... A lot of the touring artists that I know, they felt like they had to leave, like you said, because they yeah. wanted to make money. They think it was yep. hindering their career. So someone right. like you who actually went back, I was just curious on that. But yeah. Seattle in the late 80s, early 90s, very interesting time for rock music. I know you get yes. that all the time, from Pearl Jam to Alice in the Chains to uh, Navardia. So, and you already mentioned Rem. So let's start with Rem. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. How, how do you get that gig? <clears throat> well, you know, and I want to say just to kind of go back to the Seattle music scene at that time, there was a lot of cool music that wasn't rock and roll happening in Seattle. There was like really cool jazz that was kind of like avant-garde jazz and mm-hmm. experimental, you know, like electronic and kind of, uh, I guess what you would just call hybrid hybrid jazz. Like lots of forms were, were coming together and it was instrumental and it was led by horn players. Um, guys like Skerrick, who, you know, kind of played in both rock bands and did, you know, he's a totally accomplished jazz musician. So there was a lot of cool stuff like that. There was electronic music. There was, you know, industrial dance music. I mean, all kinds of stuff happened in Seattle. Rock and grunge was just kind of one part of that, which ended up, you know, kind of becoming the most famous part of it. But those of us that were in the scene at the time remember all this other cool stuff that was going on. So, um, how that parlayed into playing in REM was when Peter Buck, the founding guitarist of REM had moved to Seattle when they mixed, uh, I think it was the automatic for the people album, which is their huge giant, you know, the biggest album. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like so many millions of albums sold. I don't even know how many. And he loved Seattle because it was, you know, a, a thriving music scene, very different from, you know, what, where he was living at the time, which was in Georgia. And so he ended up marrying a friend of mine who owned this famous club called the Crocodile, which is where everybody played. And she introduced me to him and we just became friends immediately. And this was in 1993, maybe. Okay. Or 92, 93, something like that. So, I mean, it's coming up on 30 years that, that I've known Peter. And, uh, we ended up being in the house band at the crocodile where like, for example, at that time, there were a lot of singer songwriters that would come through on a tour 
and they wouldn't have a band with them because it was too expensive to take a band. So they just show up with their guitar. And Peter's whole philosophy was, if you come to Seattle, we're going to put together like the greatest backup band and you will play our club with this all-star backup band playing your songs. So we would learn the songs the night before, do a sound check, uh, the, you know, the day of the show. And the band would be like, like sometimes I played upright bass actually. And sometimes I played drums and Peter would be on guitar. And this other guy, Scott McCoy, who was another guitar player in REM would play guitar. And sometimes we would have a horn section like Skerrick, you know, would sit in and play with us. And it just kind of depended on who was available. But it was like we made this really special night in Seattle for these singer-songwriters that were used to just playing with an acoustic guitar and maybe not very many people showing up. But they come to the Crocodile and it would be like a packed, a packed room with this like killer backup band. So, so Peter and I did that. I, I mean, that seemed to go on for a couple of years that we were doing that. And then he asked me, to play on um, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which was the next record that they did. And I, I just played percussion on that record. It was like the record was already recorded and they just asked me to play percussion on it. And then they asked me to kind of, you know, join the band by helping them make the next record, which was called Up. And on that record, I played, like I said, mostly upright bass, vibraphone, marimba. I did play drums, but they were also experimenting with drum machines. So it was kind of like, you know, a drum machine and me playing like, uh, like an Arabic doombeck drum and, you know, shakers. And then I'd play upright bass and I'd play a vibraphone thing. Or It was just across the map, like all kinds of stuff. And so uh, those, are the, those are the two REM records I played on. And then they went on tour, and I couldn't really tour with them because I had my own stuff going on. Um, so I had to, you know, decline on that. But, uh, but I, Peter and I have played on, I think, about 30 albums at this point together. Just uh, he and I playing, you know, with other people. That is impressive. <laughs> and <laughs> how is he as an artist? Oh, he's great. I mean, he still lives. He moved down to Portland um, several years ago now, but I mean, that's still like two hours away from Seattle. And uh, yeah, we, we played it. We just worked on a record not too long ago and probably going to work on another record uh, that I'm going to be producing in Nashville in a couple of weeks. Um, I, don't, I don't think he's going to come to Nashville, but I'll probably bring the recordings back and have him play on it back here at my studio. So that's how we all work together. It's like, I'll call him and say like, Hey, I'm working with this, this guy in Nashville. He's, he's a Cuban artist who is making a rock album. And would you like to play on it? And Peter's like, Oh yeah, of course. Okay. We'll go into that. Actually, we'll go into that right now. Screw it. So that's how you, is that how you got the Grammy, the Latin Grammy? Uh, oh, the Latin Grammy. No, that came from a guy in, in Brazil, Brazil. Yeah. that I'd worked with for 20. I worked with him starting in uh, 1999. Okay. And I've played on multiple records for that artist. His name is Nando Hayes um, as a drummer and percussionist. And for that particular album, he asked me to produce it because I, I racked up a few production credits over the, you know, over the last 20 years. And he, um, he asked me to come to Brazil and produce the record, and I played drums on it and produced it. And then I brought the recordings back to the United States, and I got Peter to play on it. 
and I got Mike McCready from Pearl Jam to play a ripping guitar solo. And, uh, and, and I got, I got Skerrick to play, to do some horn arrangements on it. And so, uh, the, the record was kind of done as a hybrid, um, you know, mostly recorded in Brazil, but with some American guest appearances on it. And then, uh, my other, uh, mentor and, and old friend, uh, Jack and Dino, who, you know, is famous for all those early sub pop recordings, he mixed it. And yeah, it won the Latin Grammy for best Brazilian rock or alternative album, which is, you know, it's a pretty big category in the Latin Grammys because it's an album category. I think any Grammy is an accomplishment. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And we just got a, a another Latin Grammy nomination uh, this, this last week. Congratulations. For, um, <laughs> Well, it, it, it's kind of cool because, uh, and it's with the same artist, Nando Hayes, and it's for this time, uh, it's just one song that we did during the, the pandemic lockdown where we recorded it remotely mm-hmm. at my studio in Washington and, and his studio in Brazil. And it's up for best Brazilian song, which is a big category because you can imagine, you know, That's Brazil a- has so many great songs. I mean, Brazilian music's incredible. But we we got a Grammy nomination for best Brazilian song, Latin Grammy. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, so you're hitting out these countries. You're expanding. How does that even feel? How do you, you have a huge market share in America? You have a market share in Latin America, if sure. not South America. So, as a producer, does that give you? I. <laughs> you well, got a lot well, of clean. Yeah, I'm yeah, good. yeah. I, I mean, well, my wife, my wife is Latina, and she jokes. She's like, she's like, you're getting all this Latin Grammy attention because because you're married to a Latina. You know, it's just like the karma of. But, and that might be true. I think some of that is true. But it's also true that I went by myself in the late 1990s to several countries um, in West Africa, Central America, and South America, just to learn all those rhythms. Um, And the reason why I did that is that, you know, I I was exposed to that when I was in music school in the 1980s, you know, like if you're a, if you're a jazz studies major, you know, you're, you're looking at all the Latin jazz and, you know, an Afro-Cuban jazz, Afro-Latin, Afro-Brazilian. It's just, it's part of, you know, the program to immerse yourself in that music, especially if you're a drummer and a percussionist. I mean, it's, you kind of, kind of have to do that. We called it the ABCs, right? Africa, Brazil, Cuba, you got to do that. And it's great to do that academically. I mean, you should do it academically. So you really understand the theory and you really understand what are the roots of this? What, where did it come from? What are the social conditions that created these forms of music? And it's your responsibility to know that and really, um, understand that foundation and then learn how to play it. But after all those, those rock and roll uh, years in the 1990s, about 1997, I was like, you know, I, this is great, but I, I need to go to these countries where I studied the music when I was in school, you know, 10 years earlier. So I went to Senegal, uh, West Africa with a uh, drum master who also lived in Seattle, but I went with him and his family he was a Wolof uh, griot, you know, from, from the, the griot tradition of drumming and storytelling. Yes. I spent two months with, with that family in uh, Senegal, and I did some of my own traveling on my own. I went to Ghana, 
and I took I took some drumming uh, classes at the University of Legon in Accra, and uh, and and spent just a few weeks there. I, I wasn't able to stay as I would have loved to have stayed there, you know, for like months and months and months. But I also had to come back and work. <laughs> so so I uh, <clears throat> I spent time in Senegal and Ghana, and then the following year I got invited to go to Cuba and work on a music project in Havana. And, uh, so I spent, um, I think it was, it was two or three weeks in Havana. It wasn't, again, it was kind of a short trip, but I got to work directly with these, um, amazing Cuban drummers and percussionists. And one of them was a Santeria drum priest. And, you know, I got to go to a ceremony in Havana. I mean, it was really like, you couldn't ask for, for like more, incredible immersion, you know, like right into the culture. And then the following year was 1999. And I got that invitation to go to uh, Brazil and work with Nando on that first album. Uh, And in between all that, I also took a trip to um, Central America because I have a cousin that lives in Belize. And so, um, yeah, so I I visited her and I drove around Belize and Guatemala. and, And there's like this really cool um, culture right on the Caribbean coastline of Belize called the Garifuna. And you've probably heard of them because they, they made some like incredible records um, that I, that I think, you know, were really well received. And so I spent some, some time studying with the Garifuna drummers. So in the course of between 1997 and 2000, I, I really traveled and studied with, you know, these like actual drum masters. And then as because I'm a drum set drummer, I had to figure out how to like bring that into my playing. Um, That's what I was going to ask you actually. After. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of that drumming from those countries is hand drumming. You know, it's not drum set drumming. You're playing with your hands, but it creates a kind of, uh, uh, what is the word for it? A, a synthesis in your body where these rhythms, you know, become part of your cellular memory and then it just comes out in your playing in, in kind of magical ways. You know, like I could sit behind the drums and I could play some traditional Wolof uh, sabar rhythms, for example, because we did a lot of sabar drumming. And I could play that on the drum set. But there's also this more subtle thing that starts to happen, which is um, cellular memory of the place and the people and the food and the families and the, the atmosphere of it becomes part of your being. And yeah, that I would really, I I would try to stress that to listeners that it's not just learning those rhythms. It's absorbing the culture and the people into your own being. And and that is what changes and evolves you as a human being. So even though I'm just going to say a trumpet player, are you suggesting that they actually leave the country, go to other places and actually learn their instrument in a different style? Yeah. I do. I mean, the first thing I tell people like music students, I'm like, this is great that, I mean, I was a, I I was also a, um, a music professor for seven years. So, you know, I had lots of music students, but I was teaching them ethnomusicology. You know, I wasn't teaching them how to play the trumpet. I was teaching them about this is music from all over the world that you should be familiar with. But I always tell people like drummers, especially I'm like, as soon as you can afford it, you have the time, you got to go to Africa you just go and find, you know, like research it, find, find, you know, a, a drum school where, cause it's very organized over there. It's not hard to find a place to, to study drumming over there. 
West Africa kind of has a whole micro economy built around that. So go live in Africa for a few weeks or a few months, play with those people, with learn those rhythms, immerse yourself in the culture, and you'll come back like so different and such a better drummer. It just will like totally change your whole philosophy on drumming. You know, and, and the first thing that the drum master told me when I got to Senegal, he said, the, the original Holy Trinity is the drum and the drummer because the, the, the hollow uh, log of the drum is the forest kingdom. Mm-hmm. The animal skin over the top is the animal kingdom. And when a, a human plays that, that's the human kingdom, you, you unite the three kingdoms. I always thought like that's that's like the that is the best holy trinity right there. I mean, percussionists know that drums are the superior instrument all over the world. They're found <laughs> that's right. all over that's cultures. Right. But yeah. So what? and then yeah. and then like twenty years later, I, I did a I played on a record for Ironing Board Sam, and I, I don't know if you know who Ironing Board Sam is, but he was a, a pretty famous soul singer in the nineteen sixties, and in fact what he's really famous for is Jimi Hendrix was his rhythm guitar player. And then and that was like in 1965, 64, 65. And then Jimmy moved to London and started the Jimi Hendrix experience. And that obviously changed history, but ironing board Sam was this incredible soul singer. And I played on a record uh, that he was doing in Mississippi back in 2015. And he told me, he was like, he's like, bear, let me tell you, I'll tell you how to write a hit. It all starts with the beat. You got to like make a killer beat and get people moving. And then the vocals come in and tells the story. And that's how you write a hit. He he was adamant that it was always about the groove and the beat. Okay. We could go into the man of the steel <laughs> and you want to go there. So, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you some Senegalese questions on top of that. And sure. then, was there a major culture shock at the school? Anything that really came out of there? Did it push uh, well, you to do anything or learn anyway? Well, in, in Senegal, it wasn't really a, it wasn't in a school. We were literally living in a village uh, just south of Dakar. So, and it was right on the ocean. So we had, we had like a little house and, um, and we all lived in this house together. It was like a bunch of, uh, I mean, all Americans, you know, we were all American drummers. I think I was the only professional drummer. The other ones were, you know, like pretty young and just kind of into African drumming, but they weren't like in rock bands or anything like that. And so um, we all lived in this little house right on the beach. Didn't have any electricity, but um, but we had, um, you know, cold running water, which was great because it was so hot. Like all you wanted to do was just like cold water. And every day the, the drum masters would come and they were the drummers for La Ballet Senegal, which is the, the premier drum and dance group of West Africa. I mean, they're just like incredible. And they would come and we would just spend all day learning rhythms and playing together. And they would, they would talk about, uh, you know, sort of like the history of the rhythms, like what they meant and, you know, w- what sort of ceremonies or sometimes it was just for, like a, a block party. They have these, these really great block parties where everybody brings food and they drum and dance. And it's just, just kind of a community celebration. It's not even for, for a religious thing. It's just to like celebrate the community. And so that's kind of what we did every day, pretty much like clockwork. It was just like a daily 
regimen. And then, you know, we take days off and we just go, you know, walk around the city and, you know, take little field trips and things like that. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just like, that's how they live, you know, when they're, when they're practicing and studying music, you know, it's, you don't go to, uh, you don't go away and go to a separate place. You practice in your home or in the street and everybody in the community can hear you. And sometimes, you know, some, some, you know, ladies would walk over and start dancing because it just felt like dancing while we were practicing. And then they would leave and go do their daily shopping or whatever it was they were doing that day. Okay. So Havana, Rio, and I'm forgetting to capital Senegal. The, and I had, so. Oh, uh, well, yeah, so I went, <laughs> so, the, 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 so it went. Comparing those three <laughs> countries, okay, so Cuba, yeah. Brazil, and Senegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the cities were Dakar, Senegal, Havana, Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, Rio, and Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then um, in Central America, I was just, I rented a Jeep, and I was just driving around. Um, so what shocked you the most about all those? Uh, I don't know if... It, it's not so much what what is shocking. Well, I will say what what you do realize is like there's a level of poverty in those places that we barely comprehend in the United States. Although, I mean, there are parts of this country that are extremely poor, and I've I've seen some of those places too. But it's really not the same thing as you know, like developing. Uh, you know, the the poverty that just happens in developing countries. Um, which I think is an economic thing that we're also seeing in this country where the wealth sits at the top, you know, in a tiny percentage of the population, probably less than 5%. And uh, maybe there's five or 10% that are a little bit what we would call middle-class. And then 80% of the people are pretty much living at the poverty level. That's pretty much how it was in, in, um, in West Africa and Cuba and Brazil is really like that too. Um, and I, I, am afraid it's starting to happen in this country. I'm starting over the course of, you know, 25, 30 years of traveling. I'm seeing the same things happen in this country now too. I think it's just, I mean, that, that's a whole other conversation about capitalism and, and, uh, and how, how people are exploited for their labor and their, uh, I get you, but that one is the conversation you probably might hate me for because as an economic background, (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay, good, good, good. Uh, There's a lot of stuff I will agree with you on there, and there's a lot of stuff I'll be like, eh. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I studied economics, too. That was my other, you know, when I was an undergrad. I loved economics. I, I just think it's fascinating how we create economies, you know, and that's how amazing. we, how we find ways to, to make a living, you know. We'll do more of that off the air. But one thing I also okay, want to go back yeah, to yeah. before I forget. Okay, so you're in Seattle. And mm-hmm. your friend owns a club that has yep. a songwriting place. Yes. Where the songwriters come and they sing and everything. Do you think we need more of those to help progress music? Or do you think that's a thing of the past? No, I do. And I, I'll i say this about the Seattle music scene, which is really kind of a shell of what it used to be. And, it's, and it, it, it is an economic thing. And, and I'll tell you what happened. In Seattle, we had this huge microeconomy uh, all built around music. And I, I wouldn't even call it a microeconomy because it was such a big part of Seattle and the greater Pacific Northwest. It was hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year that were generated by 
not just the bands, but all the ancillary economies that were around that. So the recording studios, the record labels, the nightclubs, obviously touring is a big part of it. And royalty earnings were much, I mean, they were, it's just before the digital age. So it's all CDs and vinyl and there wasn't even digital downloading. So the economy was huge. And the big mistake that Seattle made is they allowed the tech companies to move in and it re it reshaped the whole landscape of the city. So they started tearing down recording studios to build these huge apartment buildings that had hundreds of tiny apartments for the tech workers. But then now there's no place for the musicians to practice with their bands. And then they started tearing down um, recording studios. And, and then the worst thing that happened was the technology platforms that took over. Because what they did is they inserted themselves into the middle and the lion's share of the royalties goes to the stockholders of Apple and Spotify and Amazon and not to the artists creating the music. And so all of those factors combined just made the whole economy just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And although there is a small music scene, it's just more that there's a lot of musicians in Seattle, just like there's a lot of musicians in New York City. But it doesn't mean that there's an infrastructure for there to be this thriving scene. Okay. Like part of the reason why part of the reason why I have my studio in Olympia, Washington, is that it's absolutely unaffordable to have a commercial space in Seattle if you could even find one to put a studio in, because they tore down a lot of those spaces. So um, so I'm an hour south of the city where where I easily found a commercial space, but you can't even do that in Seattle. Okay. So you really believe that the techies, Silicon Valley, all those people did more harm than good in the terms well, of music. In yeah. Terms of yeah. Music. In terms okay. of music, I think so. Yeah. I think that, and, and if you, well, you might know about this uh, if you're following the economics of music, um, the British parliament is debating this right now because they're realizing that the royalty rates are so tiny. It's not supporting British, the British music industry, which is, that is a gigantic industry. And they're seeing it get smaller and smaller because the tech platforms have, you know, they become the middleman, but they're huge publicly traded commodities. So by the rules of capitalism, they got to pay the profit and the dividends to the stockholders, not back to the people that write the songs and make the records. And England is progressive and they're like, you know what, we'll, we'll destroy our own music industry if we don't intervene and change these royalty rates or regulate it so that, you know, they can't exploit the, the music in the way that they have. But I think that it was a perfect storm here in Seattle. I think it was a combination of the tech platforms and just bad urban planning. You know, they just kind of didn't think ahead. That's what I would go with <clears throat> more. Yeah. Because I've been there and I'm really disappointed at your layout since. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad Just you as saw bad it as firsthand. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you've, you've seen it. Cause now, you know, you like it's, it's terrible. The city has terrible planning and the traffic is horrible and they still have not put in um, a mass transit system. It's still just buses, you know? Uh, like I said, that's going to be another topic off the thing, but <laughs> do you guys have their, you're able to put a subway line in the, over there, right? 
I don't even know if you well, have the well, this is I mean, this is part of the joke of Seattle is that they started to do that. When I moved to Seattle in 1987, the whole downtown was dug up because they were putting an underground in. And we all thought, oh, they're going to put a subway in. Great. They didn't. They put in buses underground. But the buses that they bought were from Italy and they were too big for the tunnel. And so they wouldn't they couldn't make okay. the turns in the tunnel. So this is what I'm talking about. Like Seattle urban planning is legendarily horrible. Like they didn't even like they had the opportunity to put a subway in and instead they put in buses that okay. were too big for the tunnel. When you told me they dug it up and I'm like, I still didn't see these lines when I, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, but in 1987, in 1987, all of the avenues through Seattle were all like literally huge trenches because they were putting in this underground system. Uh, it went on to bus it. Uh, okay. Yeah, I okay. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. <laughs> so, but if you could save the music field, at least in Seattle, because yeah. as someone who loves rock music, a, a great amount of artists from the 90s, 80s, yeah. and I believe Hart is from there too, right? Yeah. Hart okay. is the original. Yeah. We love the Wilson <sighs> sisters. Please tell me you know them, though. Well, I don't really know them, but I ha I played on some songs for um, uh, for um, uh, the the I'm forgetting I'm getting their names mixed up, but the the sister that's the guitar player um, with, Nancy? with blonde yeah Nancy Nancy okay. um, I played on some songs on one of her solo records in the 1990s, so so I was in the studio working with her, but but I'm not like I don't have her. Okay, no, 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 I was just saying, because I like <laughs> yeah. their stuff. But Yeah, I, I, always, I grew up on that music, man. I loved Heart. So how would you help bring that scene back? At least on a rock point of view, if not a jazz point of view. What would you implement? What would you change? I think all this stuff we're talking about applies to both rock and jazz or any music form. Because if you want to create a music scene or, or um, support one that already exists, you have to do some very uh, specific things. You have to make sure that there's housing that's affordable for the musicians. You have to make sure they have places to rehearse and work on their music and, and rehearse with their bands. You have to leave commercial space available for recording studios, uh, you know, so that they can physically live and make the music in that city. And some cities in the United States have, have figured that out. And, uh, and the best is probably Nashville. They know that, you know, if you want to have the biggest music scene in the United States, you have to take care of those things. Also Tulsa, Oklahoma does that. We, I produced a record that we recorded some of the tracks in Tulsa and, uh, Tulsa has this amazing, um, I, I don't know if it's a nonprofit or if it's just a, a city organization exactly, but they provide housing and rehearsal space and, and they have a thriving music scene. And Tulsa has always had great musicians. Um, so I, I don't know what it is in every city in the United States, how they do it. But if I was sitting on a city council and I was asked the question you just asked me, that's pretty much what I would say. You have to decide that you want music to be a, a, a big part of your city. And I, I think music gives a city its soul. You know, It certainly isn't the tech industry. You know, the tech industry is not soul, you know, it's, it's all about making money, but usually at the expense of other people. So 
it's a double-edged sword. You know, like we use technology to make records. You know, we record things digitally and it's great because it allows us to make a record that would have cost $250,000 in 1995. You can make a record that sounds like that for like $20,000, mm-hmm. you know? And, you and a whole project for less than 10000 Or Of course, yeah. Like depending on, you know, the, the skills Stop, of the... Yeah. Yeah. musicians and all that stuff yeah. and yeah like how many musicians and are you paying the musicians or you know, are they doing it? You know <laughs> that's you have to figure that in when you're making an album budget you know but so that part of technology is great but what isn't great is is the uh the platforms that then sell that music or essentially give it away for free but don't pay royalties back to the artists that's that's how you destroy music scenes. But at least from, I think Napster came out in 99. I didn't check yeah. it when I was talking about somebody about that. But I think you're right. Okay. Yeah. So it's from 99, 2021 right now. Why would somebody actually start buying albums again? There are people who grew up and had well, access to free music. Yeah, but that's why that's why vinyl is is booming. And uh, are, I, I don't are know. Are they even the, selling that many? The, yes, Uh the the sales for for album vinyl albums in 2020 was as much as it was in 1997 which i think was the previous peak of vinyl because technically the 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 biggest year for selling physical product in the music industry was the year 2000 it was the peak of cd's vinyl you know being physically sold and then it started to go down with the digital uh, platforms but the vinyl sales peaked in 1997, and this last year was the same number of, of vinyl units. And I, I think that that's just a nostalgia thing. People want to physically hold the music, you know, and have it be like, I own this. This is part of my collection. But like, I, I've heard some very interesting um uh, opinions on this. Like I was, I was reading an article and I, I can't tell you exactly where I read it. I can't remember, but, uh, they were interviewing like rap artists and, um, some pop artists. And they were like, you know, it actually are the way we make our music sound doesn't sound as good on vinyl as it does digitally. So we don't make vinyl. We prefer that people be able to download it or get it on a CD or whatever. And so it was a, it was a technical reason for not making vinyl. Um, and then the other side of it is that it takes about six months minimum to get vinyl because there's so much of a backlog getting it. So it's very hard to like plan your release when you, you know, you don't have the product. Well, I can also tell you from my friends that are in the rap music industry part of it, I would say. Sure. Is that they have to keep dropping tracks literally to stay relative. Right. It has to be constant. So they can't wait six months. That's right. If something happens, a conflict, they drop a single. And then you right. hear another single. And you, so yep. digitally works great for them. Right. See, and that's a really interesting, because that is a, that's a cultural part of how the music is released and received. You know, it's part of the music, of, of that music culture specifically. And that's very different than, say, a rock band that makes a concept album of, 12 or 13 songs and wants to release it all at once. And they want it to come out on vinyl and CD and digital. And so they wait till they have everything and then they release it. And then I'm going to go and just because you seem to be very knowledgeable on all this stuff and I'm learning a lot from you. (laughs) So (laughs) at least in the performance part, at least the hip hop industry doesn't really, 
average make a profit? Really? I don't know that much about the hip-hop economy. I mean, I do, I'll say this, I'm old enough, you know, I'm almost 55. I was around when hip-hop started, and, and man, we loved it. Like, the 1980s, it was so cool to hear, like, that with, like, the, the new wave. I mean, it was, like, a really cool period of time musically. Like, all that music was so new and interesting. Um, but I... I totally don't know the economy of it okay i'm just i'm just not educated in it so i don't know understood okay but do you think those venues will be able to accommodate the rock scene the jazz scene the hip-hop scene uh well as far as live venues go is that live is it, okay live venues um man that's a tricky business uh i i'll say this the because i don't know anyone but, who will actually want to invest in one like let's right, just say i had right. a warehouse in Brooklyn. Right. Do I really well, want to make that into a live music venue? Like the, the Crocodile Cafe, right? That that was the legendary rock club in the United States. Ranked as one of the best rock clubs that you could play if you were on tour. I know from the way they ran that business, because they were friends of mine, they were famous for paying the bands like 90% of the door so that only 10% went to the club. But they also had a restaurant, they had a bar, it was packed every night, so they could afford to do that. But then there are clubs that essentially do pay-to-play where they charge a band, you know, like several hundred or like, I played a club in LA one time um, and they charged me a thousand dollar fee to play the room. So that, you know, even though we filled the room, we didn't make any money. How many people could fit in the room? Um maybe 200. Okay. Yeah. And I think we had like a hundred. Yeah. We had like 125, 150, something like that. I mean, it wasn't totally sold out, but it was a, a full room. And those are like the predatory clubs, you know, it's like, like kind of gangster pay to play. Um, I had kind of hoped that those places would close down during the, the pandemic because they don't deserve to be open. You know, they're parasites on musicians. Um, but the good clubs, Pay, pay the bands well. They don't charge huge room fees. And that's good karma because if you pay the bands, the bands want to keep coming. You'll always have great music. But the, the parasite clubs, um, I mean, they survive basically on the blood of the, the musicians that are, that are playing to get exposure, but all the money's just going to keep the club afloat, you know? Yeah. I don't know what that's like in New York City because... I've only played there when I was booked by a promoter that, you know, paid us a guarantee and paid us really well. And, um, and we always had great shows out there. Like every time I played in New York city, I mean, we, we would play multiple nights and sell out every night. And so I always had great experiences out there, but if you were up and coming in New York, I think that that would be a different thing. I think it'd be pretty tough. Well, at least in Brooklyn, off the top of my head, I can honestly say Brooklyn made is something like that. They have a stage, they have a yeah. bar, they have a restaurant kind of thing, they have a lounge right. area. So right. that's something that they have in Bushwick. So, And that's a good club where lots of people play? And, and they have a whole bunch of different acts. I only yeah. went there a few times recently. Like right. this week I went to see Trombone Shorty perform. Oh, he's awesome. I, we, we played with him in London. Um, it's been a few years ago and he was the headliner, but it was incredible. That's a... Uh, just, I saw him, like I said, last week, and I saw him like seven years ago. How he evolved 
in that short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember talking to him after the last show because I got lucky to run into him. Yeah. And he was saying he doesn't care like about the jazz world like that. He wants to be a rock star. He wants to be on the cover of the rock magazine. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he changed his playing to fit that. He has a kick-ass guitar player. Yeah. Yeah, two. And then he had two saxophone players, a buried and a tenor. And yeah. he had the drummer, a backup vocalist, and a bass player. And when right. he's riffing on top of his solos on that, it's just like, yeah, I could literally see this. I wouldn't say opening for Van Halen, but I could see him like literally sure. in that scene at that time holding his own. Yeah. Well, he probably had the same realization that Miles Davis had right before he made Bitches Brew. Because, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, this is a his, history thing that, you know, people that studied, you know, jazz history just kind of all, all automatically know this, but, you know, Miles had made all those amazing records, you know, in the fifties and, and, uh, you know, mid up to the mid sixties, but then, you know, rock and roll was becoming really popular and he saw how big the rock shows were. And he was like, man, I, I need to like find a way to, uh, uh, tap into that market. And so he switches up his instrumentation to, you know, electric guitar and, and Fender Rhodes and, and um, two drummers and, you know, and makes like one of the great masterpieces of all time. And I think, I mean, I was only two years old when that record came out. So I, I wasn't aware of it until I went to music school and everybody like studied, you know, the history of that record and the music and all of that. But what he did was he tapped into all of the youth that were used to those sounds, you know, the sound of the electric guitar, the sound of Fender Rhodes, and, um, and this idea of uh, building music around a riff or a motif, at, which is what rock and roll is. It's a guitar riff, and, you know, or, or in jazz and classical, you call it a motif. And so that's totally what he did, and that's why that record is literally a masterpiece. I agree. And you see Troy performing in bigger audiences than yeah. pretty much any jazz artist at this time. Unless it's like a yeah. jazz festival, I right. can't really think of anyone. Right. Maybe, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Michael Boulet is the only other person. Mm -hmm. But right. other right. than that, I don't really know. <laughs> right. So, Well, I like that kind of music a lot. I like that kind of fusion that, that blends like the the great melodic ideas of jazz. Cause that's, that's what I loved about jazz. Um, I loved how the, the melodies were so memorable and that isn't always the case with rock and roll. Sometimes, you know, you remember the guitar riff, but the singer might be kind of screaming over the top. And that's not really the thing you remember. You remember the melody and you remember the rhythm. And that's why I love jazz as a young man. You know, I just thought it, I mean, as a kid, I loved it. And then, you know, I, I've just always kept that with me, like whatever band I was playing in, whether it was a rock band or if I'm producing a singer songwriter or whatever, I'm like, it's real. we got to have great melodies and we got to have like badass rhythms. And if you do that, mm -hmm. then almost any musical form you create is going to be great. Well said. And Robert Glasper is another oh, yeah, person yep. who does that, but in a more urban point of view, more sure, R&B yeah. scene, his yep. black experiments Yep. I, oh, I'm forgetting the title of the album, so I know people are gonna. Well, he me for he that. won he won the Grammy. Was it last year for for like the best instrumental pop instrumental record? Which that I've I follow that category because that's a really interesting category 
it can be jazz, but it's sort of like a little bit different than that. It's just like cool instrumental music that probably has jazz influences in it, but does not necessarily have to be a pure jazz record. Yes. And I heard him play time after time, Cindy Lawford. I hear yep. Miles play Cindy Lawford's time after time. And I'm like, that's the direction people seem should be going towards. Right. But well, because that song has an incredibly good melody. Like as soon as you say time after time, I'm like, I totally remember the melody immediately. <laughs> but, but I also remember every like John Coltrane melody and and Miles Davis melody. I mean, those guys were and Wayne Shorter. Can we just like early Wayne Shorter? I really love. Yeah. It. Oh man. Like yeah. The 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 um those three records that he made in a row. Um, uh, uh, what's the title of the one? It's got Witch Hunt and and uh, Wildflower and um, those melodies are incredible melodies. I mean, and they're long melodies too, right? They go for like eight bars before it repeats itself. I mean, incredibly sophisticated and incredibly memorable. Well, okay, so that let's go on that. So my question on that is, so I have this big problem with jazz conservatories, some of these conservatories in general. It's like right. they push the old way of teaching. And right. I know they're, instru- they're professors who tell people that they need to diversify, open up and all that stuff. But then we get the jazz critics, the jazz noobs that like try to right. keep everyone in a box. Right, right. I think that holds yeah, them. Yeah. But you were a professor, so I'm just curious, how did you handle that in general? Like people who don't want to open up. Well, so, And then I, they I thinking think, it should be played yeah. one specific way or... Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's just the nature of um, traditional forms of music. There are always people, they're kind of like the self-appointed gatekeepers. And they think like, well, jazz should only sound... Like, like it did up to 1964. And then if, if it doesn't sound like that, it's not traditional. And like, but you know, Miles had that great quote. He said, jazz has no direction and it never will. Like that is Miles Davis's quote. And he was saying that it's, and, and I, I think most uh, music historians and people that really study this theory, they, they agree with that. It, it is a constant outcropping of American culture. That's why right now you hear the hip hop influence in jazz. You know, you hear it in the beats. You hear it in uh, the the way that um, a horn solo could also be like a rap. Or like most famously when Thelonious Monk stood by the side of his piano and danced at the, uh, uh, the, the Monterey Jazz Festival, his way of expressing his solo was to dance. And it's an incredible video. He's got his hand up because it's an upright piano. It's not a grand piano. I know, but I kind of think that was drugs related. Oh, I don't know if he was doing drugs. I have no idea. Okay. But but it's interpreted (laughs) like his, he was saying like, hey man, a solo can be a dance. It doesn't have to be me, you know, playing a melodic solo. Like, so jazz is always expressing the different facets of, of American culture. Well, any culture that plays it, but you know, it's America's original music. And so I think you have to like be open to that. You have to accept that that's just the way the form is going to go. So I embrace that. I think that's an amazing way to look at music. It should not be locked in a box and, and, and kept like in a time frame. Okay. So at least modern jazz artists, 
Who yeah. else catches your eye that you know off the top of your head? Because at least when I mentioned Trombone Shorty, you were like, yes. Yeah, yeah. So who yeah. else? Anybody? I, well, because I saw, yeah, I like, um, there's, uh, there's a great drummer. Um, oh, now I'm just spacing names right now because now I'm on the spot. Um, Micaiah McCrayan. Okay. He's really cool. I really like, see, and there's an example of a guy that's like a, a really great drummer, both, you know, both technically a great drummer, but I think he's, he's now doing a lot of remixes of the Blue Note catalog. Yes, he is. And, um, and there's definitely a hip hop influence in his music and the way he plays. And um, I saw him live too, because he played in Washington in 2019 at a music festival. Uh, and uh, my wife and I went and it was fantastic, you know? When you see when you see artists live like that, for me that's that's how you know when they have it. That's when I saw Trombone Shorty in London um, at the Hyde Park uh, Hyde Park Festival, which my band was playing at. Um, that's uh, that that's kind of what sealed the deal for me. I I saw his talent, his stage presence, and I was really amazed by that. Uh, but but definitely uh, Micaiah McCraven and um, uh, as you said, Robert Glasper. Um, who else? Let me think. I'll think of some more people as we keep talking. No problem, no problem. Yeah. And before, because I keep getting sidetracked, let's, let me go into this album of yours, okay? Sure, yeah. So you yeah. got Still Point. Okay? Yes. I like it. Now, the backstory is what really got me interested. But first thing I want to say is, why didn't you perform on the East Coast? Why are you typical West Coast people do that? Oh, I, I was about to book East Coast dates in uh, 2020. I had a whole West Coast date uh, tour already booked, and we were starting to look at East Coast dates, and everything started to shut down, and we were like, well, we better not book them if it's going to shut down. And then ultimately, like, all my West Coast dates got canceled too. So my entire tour was – I haven't played a live show in two and a half years. And someone like you, how does that feel still? <clears throat> Well, it's not unusual to go many months. And I probably, at some point, I've probably gone a year without playing a live show because I was doing studio work because studio work can eat up months and months of your time. And next thing you know, a year has gone by. But um, I actually have my first show tomorrow here in the Northwest and my first show in two and a half years. And um, I'm very excited about it. We're going to play the Still Point album from beginning to end. And, uh, and um, the, the whole reason why that album exists is because my wife and I were living in Seattle. We were not digging the direction the city was going in. <clears throat> and we decided, you know what, let's just like travel for a year and we're going to find a new place to live. But we didn't really want to just like move to some place and just do the same thing again. So we put everything in storage. Most of my studio stuff stays in storage until I need it anyway. And we, uh, we, we lived in New Mexico for several months. We lived, we actually lived in New York city for a few months. Um, I love it out there. Um, but ultimately we decided, you know, cause my wife had lived in New York for many years. She was a college professor out there and we decided, you know what, let's go back to the Northwest, but let's, you know, just like maybe live out in the country somewhere, like not in a city. And she found this house on the edge of a cliff on the most northern point of the continental U.S., um, which is right 
on the uh, the water between um, British Columbia, Canada. And so, and, and it was a rental house, you know, it wasn't, wasn't for sale. So we, um, we rented that house and we, we lived there for, I think it was 14 months. Um, and during that time, we, we had this uh, really powerful spiritual practice. We, we both study Buddhism. She studies uh, and she teaches Tibetan Buddhism. And I studied Zen. I've studied Zen for about 25 years. So, so we, we did a lot of meditating. We did a lot of walking in the forest. It was surrounded by a wildlife sanctuary. So there were just animals everywhere. There's like bald eagles and deer and, and uh, coyote, coyotes and hawks. And, and I mean, it was just really incredible. And then out in the ocean, you could see whales and, and uh, uh, sea lions and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, and during that, that 14 months, she wrote a book and I wrote a book. And I also recorded the Still Point album. And I uh, produced some music, you know, f- remotely, like, like that Brazilian song that got the Latin Grammy nomination. And it was just a totally different way to live, to be completely immersed in wildlife and nature, which makes you go very internal and, and also external at the same time you know like living in a city kind of kind of like can knock you down a little bit kind of knocks you back into your apartment or into your 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 personal space but when you live in you know wilderness like that it makes you both be internal in the spiritual sense but also you just kind of want to walk around in the forest all the time and so this kind of back and forth of internal and external gave me so many musical ideas um, and I also wrote this book of short stories, which is the the book that's the companion to the album. And they're both titled Still Point. The book has a subtitle called Reflections from the Edge of a Cliff. And it was a really interesting time uh, in our in our country, you know, because you have like all these political divisions and, you know, people just saying hateful things. When were you there from about months? Oh, like uh, mid-2019 to like the end of summer 2020. Oh yeah. You were there while a good amount of stuff was going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like, like the political vitriol and, and you know, the, the, the hatefulness from the, from the far right. And, you know, just like all of these divisions that were just um, very unusual for our, you know, relatively peaceful Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, and we had to go into the cities every now and then. I had to go into Seattle from time to time. And, and um, you know, we weren't like completely off the grid or anything. There were small towns around us. But, you know, obviously we're seeing all of this stuff in the news on the Internet. And um, I just felt like, you know what, this is exactly the time to like be inwardly focused, to like work on a spiritual practice, work on being creative and um, just like not get caught caught up in all of this. So, but you know, I'll say this though, like what's really cool is, so we moved back to Olympia, my hometown. And, um, you know, I set up this little commercial studio down here where I'm producing records and, and, um, and my wife uh, was just um, hired by the, uh, the Washington state Supreme court to be a, um, an equity and, and justice advisor, you know? So it's like, 
you know, there are powerful things that happen when you go internal and work on yourself, work on your spiritual practice, whatever that is. I mean, like we, we study Buddhism, but I mean, like you can do this with Christianity. You can do this with Judaism, what, you know, whatever, whatever your spiritual practice is, you work on yourself and then you come back into the world with like, I want to offer something. I want to help. Um, and, and my wife and I, you know, like I said, she was a professor and, and you know, I was a, a professor for seven years and we both have that kind of thing where we want to teach and help people. And, but uh, she, I mean, she, she works at the highest levels, you know, she's, That's she's legit like, a, like the highest levels. I understand yeah, when you totally. said Supreme Court for the state, it's only yeah. the federal literally practically left. Exactly. Because she, and she is, she's a, she's a PhD expert. She worked with um, Coretta Scott King and Maya Angelou back in the, in the, in the nineties and early two thousands. I mean, she's a heavyweight. She, she does all of that and has all of that experience, but then, you know, also has the academic ability to uh, filter through all this stuff and be able to present it to Supreme court justices. Okay. Um, oh yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Well, no, and, but, but she's also like a really great uh, percussionist. So, you know, I have her play on stuff that I'm producing and she played on the song that got the Latin Grammy nomination, you know, like, so we, ha we have this both, you know, a musical cultural life, but also, you know, this uh, kind of a, a public service aspect, I would say. That's, her more than, no, her that's more a great than me. Couple, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say anything bad on that. But I mean, her, her life's always kind of been public service like that. You know, I, I try to, you know, I do my, my uh, projects where I produce albums for indigenous tribes so that they can document their traditional songs and, and their, their storytelling and things like that. And so that's like the work that I did in the Peruvian Amazon when I was in graduate school. Um, and I just produced an album up in the Alaskan Arctic for the Gwich'in tribe that live up there so that they can preserve their stories and their songs. And, you know, I basically go with like my portable recording equipment and I'll record hours and hours and hours of storytelling and music and, and make an archive so that the tribe has an archive of all this stuff. But then we'll make like an album that kind of is a, a sort of a showpiece of those stories and those, uh, those songs, you know, sort of like a, a very condensed version of that. But and like when I was in, yeah. Are the people naturally open to do that? Well, they invite me to do it. Okay. I mean, I'm I, like, I was invited into the Peruvian Amazon to work with the Shipibo tribe down there. And I was invited uh, to the Alaskan Arctic to work with the Guchin. But like, so I go up there and I set up my recording equipment in the, you know, like the community hall. And it ends up being like 18 hours of storytelling. <laughs> it's like so much storytelling that, I mean, all you can do, you archive it. So they have, they always have a, a digital copy of it, but um, you know, you can only fit 80 minutes on a CD. So you have to take like the best three minutes of that story and the best two minutes of that story. And Okay. That is, do you wish you made that journey when you were younger, when you were still playing a lot of rock music and touring? Would that well, have helped you? You think? I think, well, everything happens in the time that it's supposed to happen, right? Like you, until you develop the, the understanding at a spiritual level and, you know, there's a technical aspect to this too, you know, recording albums in the Peruvian Amazon. The first time I did it, there was no electricity in the village, you know? So we had to take a whole bunch of 
batteries with us, which we, we packed them in, we packed them out. We didn't leave anything, but like you, you have to develop like technical skills, but you also have to develop spiritual and human skills like to do that. And I don't think I had the, I don't think I had the skill when I was 22, 23 to do that. You know, even if I stayed in school the entire time, you know, you don't understand this stuff until you've got years of life under your belt and you can, you know, you can hang with people and just like be with them in, in their, in their village, you know, like living with them as they live, eating the food they eat, just kind of hanging out. Okay. Most of the time when I was in the Amazon the first time, mm-hmm. I just sat there and people would like hand you their babies to hold because they're doing chores. <laughs> and, and so like, I'd, I'd have to wait till they were ready to record. And so in the meantime, you just sit there and hold babies and, you know, like help with the chores or whatever needs to be done. And then like five, six o'clock in the afternoon, it's like, okay, let's, let's record some songs. Yeah, that is something I can't relate to at all. So yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Any, any, anthropologist or sociologist that does field work, they say the same thing. You know, you, you spend a lot of time just hanging out waiting for when they're ready to tell a story or sing a song or, or something. Okay. And you mentioned that your books, what do they tend to be about? Mainly Zen? Well, not, not really. My, my first book, the singing earth was about all of this music stuff that I did around the world on six continents so it's, uh, I think it's 14 or 15 stories from uh, 14 or 15 music, music zones around the world on six continents. So I'm just kind of telling about my experience in those places. And then a little bit of the ethnography of the people, you know, their history, what's going on, you know, what's happened over time, uh, the impact of colonialism and, and um and uh, capitalism, because that is everywhere, and it affects indigenous economies um, often extremely. And so we, uh, or I, was just trying to tell, like, the story of the people that I was hanging with, and then it also has a musical soundtrack that goes with it, with field recordings that I did from those places. Um, there's a whole chapter on the Seattle music scene, too, because that's part of, that was part of my life. Um, and then I wrote a couple other books after that that were kind of just more like just storytelling. Like sometimes there's a musical component, but sometimes it's just like a funny story about, uh, you know, something in, uh, in nature, like the way an animal behaved and, you know, some funny thing that I learned from studying that animal, you know. So it's just sort of like short stories like that. Okay. Like I said, this is, Amazing. So you got the Grammy world under wraps. You got the nature world under wraps. You literally got all that. And then you're on television. You just finished oh, yeah, your that's series right. <laughs> with Seth Meyers. That was out of the blue. I got to tell you, that's a funny one. I did not expect that. So how was that, though? So now you're getting exposure even more on the national stage. Uh, well, what happened was the music producer of the Late Night with Seth Meyers, he he f- was following me on social media, but I, I didn't know who he was. I, I didn't know his name. I, you know, I, I, I just didn't, I didn't even uh, know that, but I posted that I had the still point 
book and album coming out. I'd been like kind of setting up the release for that. And he emailed me and he said, he was like, dude, I'm a huge fan of your drumming and all the bands you've been in. And, and he's like, we're doing this thing where we have guest drummers sitting in because um, Fred Armisen, the regular drummer is like working on some other projects. So he takes time off and we bring in guest drummers. Do you think we could get you in right before your album comes out? We'll help promote your album. And so it was out of the blue, unexpected. And I was like, heck yes, I'll do that. Because I mean, I grew up during, you know, when it was originally like Johnny Carson and David Letterman and then Jay Leno, you know, and and those were like the golden era of late night talk shows. You know, they, they had really great. I mean, I met James Garner on the Jay Leno show, you know, you know, who James Garner is Rockford files. I mean, I, I got to talk with him because the screaming trees were on, we're on the Jay Leno show. And anyway, so I, uh, I was like, yes, how do we make this happen? And he's like, well, you got like four days to, to like, because rec- you have to do it remotely. You record it in a studio and you send them the tapes and they, they, uh, they edit, edit you in. So I had to do four uh, episodes in two days in, in a studio in Seattle. And we got it in just in time for the deadline and it, and it, came out tonight's the last night that I'm on living the dream. I don't know what to say, (laughs) but it's funny because I haven't been on a late night talk show since I think about 1995, you know? So it's just proof. If you, if you, if you live long enough and you just stick around, like eventually the the clock comes back to you. (laughs) Like I say, man, some of you guys, I think are living the life in the dream. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, let's be honest about it. I mean, there, this is a hard business. You just have to stay at it and you don't quit. You know, but there's that great Duke Ellington quote. And he says this, the music business is all about peaks and valleys and you'll find out what you're made of in the valleys. So it's like, you don't quit even if you don't have a, a record or you don't have a band or you're not doing, you just don't quit. You just keep doing it. Okay. Actually, since we're even on that, so how has Corona actually affected you besides the tour on this? Did anything else get affected? Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, I lost uh, a year and a half of, of touring and also couldn't work on certain records because the re- I couldn't produce the way I, I normally would produce because we couldn't get everybody in the studio together. Um, we're very careful about it up here because we... We knew people that got it. I knew two, two friends of mine. One of them was an emergency room doctor. He was one of the first guys to get really sick. And the other one was a musician who I'm, I'm not going to say his name because yeah. I out of, but, but he's a very well-known musician. <clears throat> Both those guys got so sick, they had to be intubated. They had to be put into a coma and intubated and they barely survived. Yeah, okay. like barely, barely survived and then spent months in the hospital. You know, like they were really, really made sick. And my wife had a friend from high school who died from coronavirus and her two children died also. Yeah. Like, like her two teenage kids died. Teenage kids. Yeah. And so, so there, this is way before there was a vaccine. This is just like during, so it's, I think people take it very serious. You you take it seriously, but it's a very different experience when you know people that almost died or did die. Um, and they weren't old and they weren't out of shape. They were like 
you know, young, middle-aged, healthy people. So um, it affected us in the sense where we, we were like, this is a real serious thing. We have friends that are, that are doctors and professors. And I, I know a guy that's a virologist um, at the university where I went to graduate school and he studied coronavirus like directly. So I talked with him on the phone and he told me like, Hey man, this is no joke. This is like real serious. Like these are really dangerous viruses. And so um, I think when you have that exposure to, to people that are really educated and knowledgeable, it changes how you react to it. So. Understood. And it was, and it was really bad here in the Northwest, you know, Seattle was the first place to get hit really bad. My friend who was the emergency room doctor was treating those initial coronavirus patients. And, and then he got so sick that, that they had to uh, intubate him. And I think he only survived because he was a doctor and they just like really like saved his life. They weren't, they weren't going to let him go. But uh, um, that, I, th I think that really just impacted me personally because this is a guy that I've known for a very long time. I get you on that. Yeah. <laughs> when you get personal like that, it's like, <clears throat> I just know people who disagree with the whole thing and the other side. We're not going to go on that, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just a science thing. You either, it's either you believe it or you don't believe it, but, but I just speak from personal experience when no, I, I know, know people. Yeah. I yeah. was deep, man. I was expecting more from just the specific music part, but then you started going to your friends and everything. Oh, so well, I was just like, no, 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 that's good. I, I <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, musically we couldn't do anything, you know? So all we could do was like work, work in our home studios that's and so that's why a lot of people made records during this period so where do you think the music scene will be in 10 years do you think it's going to get better do you think it's going to get worse uh you mean like in the pacific northwest specifically uh, uh, let's um, go just, there since that's where you okay expertise well you. well i think that that um let, let's we'll talk about it like economics micro and macro mm -hmm. at the micro level if they do not change these royalty laws, like they're debating in the British Parliament, you're going to see the economy of music for the musicians continue to contract and get smaller and smaller. How that affects the macro will really depend on um, people's adaptability to that. But but I think that I think it it can be said that if they don't really address what's going on with the digital platforms. I mean, we just saw this whole thing about how Facebook, you know, and I mean, we kind of intuitively know that Facebook, you know, puts money as their priority over, over truth and, and humanity. I mean, I just absolutely do not trust Facebook at all, but I have to use it to, you know, promote my shows and let people know what I'm doing musically, but I will not spend $1 on Facebook. I never have. And I never will. I just won't buy advertising, I won't do it. But I think that if, if we don't regulate these tech platforms and make sure that they pay people fairly and, and get those royalty rates higher and controlled, um, I think it'll just continue to kind of shrink and, and um, contract the music industry. <clears throat> so still the on tech the company. Yeah. yeah. So on the micro stuff that you mentioned, so how does somebody yeah. who doesn't have a name or a resume actually promote themselves? Because I know you're pro you you could say that you're not going to use Facebook. Yeah. You have right. a fan base. 
not a huge, I don't have a huge personal fan base. I mean, I have, you know, like several thousand followers, but you know, I don't have yeah, like 7,000. Yeah. Someone uh, listening to this is going to be like, guy. <laughs> but I don't have, you know, like I don't have tens of thousands of followers. I don't, you know, nothing like that. What, what I have like 5,000 followers on Instagram, something like that. Um, it's more like, I think what people, if you're starting out as a musician, follow the advice of Patti Smith, the great poet and, and rock singer. And she's kind of a shaman, you know, she said, don't worry about, you know, trying to make money and be famous, do incredibly good work, do great art, focus on that. Just do great art, make great songs, great albums, do great shows. And then the main thing she said was keep your name clean, keep your reputation clean and precise. And over time that becomes its own currency. And I really believe in that. I really think you just have to do great art and do like do ethical business with everybody that you work with, with the people in your band, with, if you have a record label, make sure that you pay everybody really well and you just stay on that path and karmically you will grow. It will just happen that way. But I don't have any like tricks of like, you know, do this, do that. It's just like make great records, play great shows and um, make sure to pay people well and, um, and live your life, you know, responsibly and, and, and clearly with purpose. Okay. So besides that then, so, I, I actually we got to go back to the macro. I'm sorry. Sure. On the macro. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. do you think that would affect the scene? The scene would be in ten years. <clears throat> well, if they don't the, at the macro level, if these tech platforms are not regulated and put under real like control and and made to pay the artists fairly, um, I, I think it'll kind of decimate creativity. I mean, it's 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 a double edged sword because like on the one hand digital technology helps people be highly creative, you know, like great artists come out of, you know, nowhere because they made like a killer song in their bedroom using digital technology. So like, I'm not against digital technology. I use it all the time. That's the positive side. But then that artist, you know, gets their song on a digital platform and maybe it gets millions of streams, you know, they're not going to really make any money at it. Like you have to be able to parlay that into touring and into, you know, merchandise and all of that stuff. So um, I, I think that it's, it's just going to get harder and harder for people to be heard and discovered uh, just because of the, um, the, the compression of the economics of that. Okay. So you really think that it was easier to be discovered 30 years ago than it is today? I think so. I think so, because for one thing, there, there weren't that many bands 30 years ago. Like it was kind of rebellious to be, you know, to be a, um, you know, be in a band and, and, you know, be a punk rocker or, or be in an independent rock band. Um, and you would be on a record label and the label would promote you and you could get played on college radio. Um, now everybody gets like five minutes. And if you don't grab everybody's attention, you're kind of forgotten about. I mean, yeah. the, the, the counter to that, which is what the tech platforms say, is that, well, look at all these people that get discovered that wouldn't get discovered otherwise. 
It's like, well, okay, but they're not, they don't really have lasting music careers. You know, they, they get a brief moment of attention and then it's gone, you know, because it's not a sustainable business model. What do you think? You're, you're an economist. What's your opinion on that? From the macro point of view, I yeah. think that the top people, like the people who somehow magically <clears throat> bust through all of that. So we'll right. just use Jay-Z as an example. Okay. Would make even more money than ever before. Well, that you're because right Because he that. has the yeah. brand, he has the right. image, and yeah. So right. people like that at the top, top are going to kill it. That's true. Yes. And, and, and they say that, that the, the people that are superstars do pull the wealth up to them. But it's a, in a weird way, it's the, t- the tech platforms mirror what late stage capitalism has turned into, where the wealth goes to the top and then you get, you know, like the, the middle class gets lower and lower and lower until you have this really big, like the vast majority of the population is just kind of working poor. That's what, that's the music business is a direct metaphor or, or actually a parallel for late-stage capitalism. Agree. So you're going to have the majority of musicians not really making any money. And if they're right. good enough, they're going to be able to teach. But then That's even right. them, they're not going to be able to do that because if you're not making any money, why are you going to spend that money to teach your offspring how to play the instrument? That's right. So we're That's going to have exactly a lot right. more dying arts in the future. Yep. Yep. I, I mean... We're seeing it happen. The arts are falling away from public school programs. You know, music is like, it used to be standard in every school. Now it's like, you're lucky if they have a music program. Um, you know, I, I know arts funding is is diminished and and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that's even distributed anymore. But I do know just because I'm old enough, I can tell you like when we toured in the 80s and 90s, it was way cheaper to tour. So you could go out on the road and you could play shows and you could make just enough money to keep going and build your audience. But they actually and had venues could, then. So that's, that's right. another thing too. So yeah. <laughs> that would be more on the micro part. Like the whole macro scene, like I, that's why I actually yeah. that about Seattle isn't really yeah. there anymore. Not not in any semblance of what it was. No. Yeah, There's so. still great mu- musicians here for sure. But but music scene is a different that's a different category. Well, that's what I mean by slowly and surely it's going to go down. Yeah, I think so, because we're seeing it happen, you know. Mm -hmm. Projecting 10 years in the future is hard. I mean, because I'm not an economist, but I can just speak from uh, just from, you know, sort of, you know, five decades of of watching this happen, you know, because I'm now 55. So I started playing when I was 21. So I've, I've been playing for you know, 35 years. Okay. Well, one other thing, because this is normally longer than I normally let the episode. <laughs> I can literally speak to you for like three, four hours on this. And well, every we can now do a follow-up. <laughs> yes. we'll, see, we'll see if people like this first one. So, And yeah, every now and then, that's one reason why I like to tell people I like when my more veterans come on. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And people who listen know like when someone new in the scene, they don't want to step on anybody the wrong way. I fully sure. understand yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one thing I just want to know, this is more of just fill my curiosity as a rock fan. So sure. if we have we have Ram, we have Stone Temple plots, we have Mad Seasons, right? So if you were to make 
your ideal project? What would it be? Mm, wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, it ha- it kind of depends on what what the goal is, like what what kind of style were you going for? But I'll say this: the band that I've been putting together right now for for the Still Point uh, promotion, like the the shows we're going to do, it's probably the coolest band that I've personally put together. Um, <clears throat> because all those other bands that you listed off were mm-hmm. bands where I was asked to join the band. So I didn't assemble the band myself. I was asked to join and be the drummer, but this band that I've put together, it's like, you know, a trumpet player, an incredible keyboard player, an incredible vibraphone player. Who's also a percussionist, two vocalists of which I'm one. And then I'm the drummer and then an upright bass player. These guys are like top jazz guys in the Northwest. I mean, really, really good players. And, and I used to have this guy from Senegal playing with us as our, as our percussionist, but he's back in, in Senegal right now. Um, he went back, you know, during the COVID thing and he just hasn't come back to Seattle yet, but he does live here. Um, and that, that was probably the greatest band I've ever put together. Just like incredibly good musicianship and intuition. But I also like I also love putting together like a a backup band if I'm producing a record and I need to put a band together. So I'll call Peter Buck from R.E.M. Or when I'm in Nashville next week, I'm going to be using um, Rich Robinson from the Black Crows. He's going to play some guitar. He's he's an old friend of mine, too. And so he's going to play some guitar on this this cube. So he's a Cuban artist who's from Cuba, but he lives in Nashville. He's an incredible technical guitar player but he's also a rock singer and songwriter and i'm producing the album and i'm putting together the backup band so i'm gonna put together like the rock and roll all-star band so that's how i do it i i i stack the deck yeah that's not <laughs> that's, fair. that's how you do it man i'm telling you you live long enough and you like and 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 and, and you're cool and you keep your friendships with all these people then it's like okay Here's a guy that nobody's heard of. Let's give him like the greatest backup band of all time. That's how you do it. I'm ta- I'm taking a uh, I'm taking it from like the 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 rule book of like Booker T and the MGs or like the Funk Brothers at Motown. You know, like put together that's literally the, the best- Funk Brothers. Yes, that's I right. agree with you. <laughs> put together the the best cats, and that's that's how you do it. Like I said, yeah, we need to do a part two of this. But sure, <laughs> before I love talking, I love talking with you totally. <laughs> before we go, we normally like to give a shout out or show respects to the artists who came before us. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. Okay. Okay. On trumpet, Freddie Hubbard or Clifford Brown. Um, let's see. I think I'll go with, uh, I like Freddie Hubbard. Um, and I'm trying to think of like some, some top hits of his, but I love, he has a very melodic way of playing. And that's like I said, in an earlier part of this interview, melody for me. Okay. On saxophone. Yeah. John Coltrane or Wayne Shorter? Because you mentioned both of them. Dude, I know they're both. (laughs) When I got married, we, we, uh, we we walked down to uh, with uh, John Coltrane's um, Love Supreme playing, 
Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. That was like our wedding walking down the aisle. And then when we left, it was like the Eagles <laughs> because we both. Which we Eagles the Eagle. song though? It was. Um, um, That's like my, one of my favorite bands of all time. Eagles. Baby, what e- what Journey, Eagles song was that? Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> oh God. I cannot remember which one it was. Um, but you know what? Let's, let's just give shout outs to both of them and I'll say why. I love John Coltrane because I believe he was a true spiritual master channeling it through his instrument. And that's why those melodies are so beautiful. I mean, think of Naima, right? I mean, it's so like not predictable, but so memorable and so beautiful. That's the spiritual soul of Coltrane coming through. But then, you know, let's take Wayne Shorter and uh, let's take, uh, let's see, which melody is it? You know, so catchy and so sophisticated at the same time. So they're both totally spiritual cats. I can't say that I love one more than the other. I love them both. Okay. On keys. Mm. Just to mess with people again, because people like to get like triggered by this. Herbie Hancock or Chick Mm -hmm. Corea? Ooh. Well, I think I have to go with Herbie on that one just because he wrote so many great songs. Again, incredible sense of melody. But Chick Corea wrote uh, Spain. And man, that was like, I played that in my high school. <laughs> You're going to make someone happy. My- so every time I say that, there's a guy who literally emails me saying, he wrote Spain. And like, bold uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but then there's another great melody, right? Right? I played that like when I was a freshman in high school and I probably had to play the bass because I wasn't the drummer yet. Um, But, but I guess I'll have to pick Herbie because he just, he wrote so many great tunes. Okay. On bass. And this should be really important to you as a percussionist. I'll just tell you who my favorite bass player is. Okay, go. It's Mingus. Really? Oh, Totally. Yeah, I mean, okay, Charles for the win. <laughs> well, but who were the two you were going to ask? I was actually going to ask you Ray Brown and Ron Carter, because every time I say Mingus, no one seems to choose him. That's why I was like, okay. Well, okay. Well, those both those guys. I I think I'd say Ron Carter of those two. Uh, just, but they're both like incredible master bass players, so it's impossible to. But Mingus is my favorite bass player. I loved his physicality in his playing. And, and, and I, I like that he had riffs in his playing. Yes. You know, because I kind of play upright bass like that. And, uh, but yeah, totally. Mingus always. Okay. And on drums. Yes. Max Roach, Buddy Rich. Totally Max Roach. Oh, am I, I the only one that goes Buddy Rich? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Buddy Rich was great too, but I love Max Roach. But, but I also have to put Tony Williams in there too, you know? 
Tony yes. Tony Williams for his his right hand ride cymbal technique is just absolutely untouchable. But what I like about Max Roach and it was a big influence on my playing as a young drummer was the use of the tom toms as a rhythmic thing rather than just playing drum fills where you use the toms briefly. Max Roach was using them as part of his rhythmic component, which I do too. Okay. And um, yeah, but totally Max Roach. Okay, so Tony Williams or Art Blakey? Oh, man, but Art Blakey is like the grandfather foundation of all of that. So I, I'd, I'd go with Tony Williams. Okay. He's just like such a virtuoso player. But I, but I love Art Blakey too, man. Art, so many people played in Blakey's bands, you know, like they, they, he was like the master teacher that moved them through, and, and then they'd go on and have their own careers. So you just have to, he's the grandfather. Okay, well, so can you tell everyone your website, your social media, how to contact you, where to buy your album, or, or even your books? Sure, yeah. Well, the books are all available worldwide on every platform. You know, they're on Barnes & Noble and Amazon and bookstores. But if you want to buy them directly from me, it's just my website, www.barrettmartin.com. And, uh, and then my social media is just Barrett Martin Official. It's on, you know, Facebook and Instagram and I don't do Twitter. I don't do that. I kind of just use the social media as necessary, but not, not joyfully. <laughs> Understood. And Twitter is a good one to avoid at times. <laughs> totally, totally, man. <laughs> well, that's every- how you sink your boat. <laughs> oh, that's a whole other conversation. Like I said, man. <laughs> well, sir, thank you for joining us. Definitely will hit you up in the future, kid. And it was a pleasure, Leander. I really love talking with you. Thank you. And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you, and have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.